from India's largest newsroom I'm Arun George and this is the Times of India podcast Newspaper headlines have been dominated by murders over the past few weeks a woman allegedly killed by her live-in partner a woman allegedly murdered by her parents over an unapproved marriage a man allegedly killed by his wife and son most religions condemn murder which is often considered the worst of sins you can commit while you're on this earth even if you're not punished on earth we're promised that you will be after death but devdutt patnaik says indian scriptures are a little more measured in their condemnation of murder in today's episode my colleague jairaj singh and i are in conversation with the mythologist and author about murder and justice in mythology devdutt patnaik tells us about a serial killer mentioned in ancient texts a murder mystery involving krishna and how people conveniently lean on gods to justify taking lives oh and also how all religions allow murderers some wriggle room to escape punishment in the afterlife Devdutt in the 10 commandments in the bible one of the prominent ones is the you shall not kill command in quran as well it's very clearly spelled out that murder is right up there in the most heinous of sins what do indian scriptures say about murder so indian scriptures really are not designed around commandments so the scriptures are talking at very metaphysical levels they're talking about spiritual ideas and while uh, both the quran and the bible come within a very legal framework what is appropriate social conduct what is not appropriate social conduct while um, buddhism jainism and hinduism sort of deal with uh, how to engage with the world what is the nature of the world so it's far more abstract in that way it's one of the problems with people feel that you know it's not giving you very clear directions because it's saying the world keeps changing the yogas keep changing so they don't very clearly tell you this is right and this is wrong this kind of a clear injunction is not given also when you start reading the stories you realize that some stories are very allegorical so you will have you know people being killed their heads being cut and you can't take them literally they are visuals trying to communicate an idea and these are metaphors so that becomes a major problem for um, jurists who try to understand hindu mythology the closest we come to a jurist text um, are the dharma shastras and the dharma shastras were again in a context written and in that they're more dealing with property issues so it's about encroachment of property division of property inheritance of property murder is there but it's not like a big thing there is uh, injunctions about how to handle murder and there is accidental murder there is uh, uh, murder with intent so manslaughter is separated from murder um, these are uh, legal issues like accident death how do you handle uh, so there there are books but you know they're scattered across it is not as central to answer your question it's not as central as in um, judaic uh, christian and islamic traditions which are highly legal the entire religion is highly legal is there anywhere where murder is justified no murder is never justified i mean killing is a crime uh, but you know it's like for example when you talk about the creation of the world a killing takes place right you have got these asuras called um, madhu kaithaba emerging from the ear wax of vishnu and then vishnu sort of catches them on his thighs and pulverizes them and their body turns into the continents now that's an act of violence which creates the world right 
or the Purusha Shuktahim, which talks about the dismemberment of the primal uh, man. So these are stories where violence is seen as creation. The death of a being creates a world. So death of Madhu Kaithaba creates the continents. Death of Purusha creates the different kinds of communities in the world. So it, the metaphorical nature of these stories sort of recognizes death and killing and recognizes there are uh, all kinds of violence. Now, what kind of violence is morally right, morally wrong? Is a king's violence acceptable when a king goes about killing people for establishing order? Is that okay? It, these are jurisprudence issues, right? St what is a state? State has exclusive right to violence. And so um, now people are using words like state-sponsored terrorism. When you read the Hindu scriptures, it's more those high-level constitutional conversations rather than very clear laws. When you read, uh, at least from a mythological perspective, you realize it, there's no clear thing that Ram says, don't do this, or Vishnu says, don't do this. that. It's just not the nature of the text. Even in the Buddhist text, he, when you read the Vinay Pitaka, it's really how monks are supposed to behave. So monks should not do this. Monks should not do that. Um, you find these stories like that. And given all of this has happened centuries ago, um, whether it's the Bible, whether it's the Quran, whether it's our Indian text, murder that sort of most heinous of sins, like how did we get to that stage where we decided that? I think it's about the point of no return, right? If I steal property, I can return the property, right? But if I kill a child of yours, I can't replace that child, right? That's where murder comes into the picture. When I kill your uh, family member, then can I, can I replace that? And that sort of, um, these are the questions that emerge in the scriptures very clearly. When we talk about murder, we're really talking about uh, the human body being taken away. You're, you know, who gives life? Who can take life? Uh, on what basis can you take life? So um, murder is a crime. So I found this very crazy story in a very obscure text. Well, not obscure from a Vedic point of view. It's called the Brahmana literature. Brahmana literature are post-Vedic texts. Um, they're written around, they're a bit before the Upanishads, so about 800 BCE. And um, you find mentioned for the first serial killer. There's a character called Yavakri and he appears even in the Mahabharata later but the story gets modified by that time and he's this strange man who has a lot of power. He's obviously very charismatic, very powerful and he keeps saying that if he calls a woman to him, the, he, the women come to him. They're so drawn by his beauty uh, but whether they come to him or don't come to him, even if they resist, they all die. So if he seduces them, they die and if they resist him also, they die. And it's such a crazy idea that you keep wondering, are they talking about a serial killer? Someone who goes around killing women who surrender to his charms and women who resist his charms. All of them are killed. And then one of the uh, women is crying because she is drawn to him and she doesn't know what to do. And she tells her husband that story. And the husband uh, sort of creates a demon and this Gandharva in some stories. Um, and then a kind of a monster is created to kill Yavakri. So Yavakri is therefore killed in this way. And even his father doesn't know how to deal with it because the father doesn't like what the son is doing but is also, um, you know, loves his son a lot and is obsessed with his son. But this story exists in 900 BC. I think it's the earliest story we have where it's really, you know, murder in its most foul. It's not like an accident or it's not a war or it is not a property dispute. 
you can't even call it a crime of passion, right? You, what it is uh, goes into the pathological spaces. It goes into the space of d- killing being pleasurable. How do you classify this? So I found this story in the Jaiminya uh, Brahmana. And I also found a similar story in the same Jaiminya Brahmana about two men riding a chariot, a king and a priest, and they run over a child. And that's an accidental death, right? Now, do we call that a murder? But then the question comes is who is to be blamed? And there is this long conversation. So you find these issues, but there is a death of a child that happens. So there is obviously accidental deaths, serial killing, uh, you know, property disputes leading to murder. Uh, property disputes being a very, very important part of in ancient literature. It's killing over property disputes. So Mahabharata, Ramayana, really a property disputes. War also begins with this idea of territoriality. So yes, there is reference to these incidents in the scriptures. I and mean, I was shocked when I found it in 900 BCE texts. I think murder is as old as uh, human. I'm sure the animals kingdom also you have got territorial battles and uh, animals sort of resist killing each other uh, because they don't want to die. I think that's where the Cain and Abel story exists, right? Uh, the Cain and Abel story is the first murder. And um, so, yeah, the, I think murder is there, whether it's from a legal framework or purely an incident. Uh, there is conversations around murder. Uh, and when it comes to the aspect of justice, um, you know, one thing is that with, again, with Christianity and Islam, you have this concept of uh, a sort of eye for an eye form of justice. Uh, but like you said, with Indian texts, we don't really have this thing where there's a law prohibiting murder. So are we advised on how to deal with it? So, uh, see, violence is wrong. So, murder may come under the larger framework of violence and hinsa and ahimsa. And then, of course, it begins with uh, animal killing, plant killing, human killings. But in India, what is unique is that you don't just talk about human beings as one large group or you don't talk of one tribal group. Uh, you also have the idea of caste. So, caste plays a very important role. And one of the reasons why Manusmriti is always reviled is it does not look at humans as humans it looks at humans the lens of caste is constantly being used Um, so if you are a murderer um, even if it's an accidental murder or a perpetrated murder they will first check the caste and based on the caste the the very clear hierarchy of punishments and hierarchy of purifications prayas chitta it is called Uh, it could involve fasting it could involve isolation it could involve charity but you know Punishment seems less severe if you are upper up in the hierarchy. So the Brahmin gets 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 away with things that a Shudra cannot, and you find this constant division. So when people talk about Manusmriti, they don't realize this is one part of Manusmriti that will never be in alignment with modern society because modern society will say everybody is equal before the law. The idea that the law treats you equally is something that is a very modern idea. So many tribal societies had this concept of blood money. Uh, if you have killed someone, mostly accidentally, let's say you shot an arrow and you have heard the story of, you know, a king shoots an arrow and hits, let's say, a boy. The king has the wealth to compensate, right? He can give you wealth and that is called blood money. And it used to be there in most societies around the world and it has now not acceptable, right? So 
right now there is you know in the in the bookshops there are books of kings and i'm seeing these lot of writers are writing about kings going to war and there is almost an admiration for kings who are slaughtering people with wild elephants and horses and going and just wiping out people to take their territory in duryodhan covets the pandava property and therefore commits a crime but we call it war we don't call it murder and that's the conversations that i think uh, we should think about is when is a act of violence um murder when is it terrorism when is it an act of war uh how do you put the craziness which is happening in america right now these young kids with guns are shooting people blindly um and uh who do you hold responsible in this case is it it and we know it's not a simple case right these uh, shootings which are happening in america uh because at one level you have got yes there is a victim there is a perpetrator of the crime there is a uh, instrument of crime that is being promoted by the state so is the state responsible for those i think 600 odd killings in the last two years it's absurd number for a civilized society to have um and i think these are questions that emerge from conversations on murder capital punishment is being challenged right people are saying that does the state have the right to if a man has murdered someone do i eye for an eye so therefore i can just kill him right um stoning of people we call it barbaric in, in middle east even today people are stoned to death in public we are hearing about the state uh, you know wanting to kill those protesters in iran because they're challenging a civil issue i think these are the questions that have to be uh, raised in these conversations even the maker of the weapon is to be asked why did you make a weapon that allows people to kill so and i think it becomes goes in the moral spaces and ethical spaces and larger conversations start to emerge devrit our myths do tell us that there are certain uh, gods are constantly invoked before a war before an act of of even say slaughter which entails um, in a war what are those uh, then um, invocations like so uh, you are calling for victory right i don't have food and i therefore fight someone who has food now the simple act of killing is now comes with moral repercussions whether uh, you know we we'll, we'll first use arguments like righteous violence unrighteous violence retribution so we sort of morally argue this case but the fact is you are killing a person right you are taking away a life and therefore uh, you somehow want to make it morally acceptable you want um, god to say it's okay and i think it's murder becomes okay if god allows it create these complex narratives and say you know saint john says that oh go and kill and the devils people and that's what politicians do as per legend this is a very uh, area of this, the 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 thuggies who lived in the chambal area they would say that we are not killing our victims we are offering her as sacrifice to the goddess kali who is a ishta devata many indian kings in the 7th 8th 9th century when the goddess worship really emerges and you see those heads around the goddesses when they would go to battle they're saying we're not going to kill for ourselves our goddess needs sacrifice and we are offering her this sacrifice and she rewards us with these people's wealth and these people's women so it's a very strange 
way in which you sort of justify the act of killing, which obviously bothers you at some extent. You're traumatized by your victims, but the moment you say that, no, 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 goddess told me to do it. So Kali told me to do it. I worship Durga before going to war. She's the goddess of weapon and I come back with stained with blood and offerings to, and she's always considered to be someone who loves blood. I think these are all complex cultural tools to cope with the horror of killing. Imagine telling a young boy or girl, training them to be warm killing machines, right? That's what a soldier is. He's trained by the state to kill people. And if he goes into a village and he's told, this is the terrorist, you have to shoot him dead. And he looks into the eyes of the terrorist and he is like, at that moment, he sees a human being. He will pull back. And there is a moral moment that he's going to go through because he has a duty. And, you know, that's, I think, something which Arjun raises in the Bhagavad Gita, where he says that at the end of the day, how can I... Of course, his problem is how can I kill relatives? He has no problem with killing strangers. He has a problem with relatives. I always tell people, Bhagavad Gita is not about violence and non-violence. It's about killing relatives. The state has to send army and people to arrest its own people. And now the morality comes in. It's not their killing, right? A murderer at least has his own intention. He is killing his he has his own agenda. A serial killer is going for his own pleasure. Uh, a, a thief is going for his own, you know, ambitions or needs and yearnings. But where do you call this world of um, where you're outsourcing the violence? The Rajputs were soldiers. The Marathas were soldiers. They were communities. Uh, Khandayats in Odisha were soldiers. Um, and their job was to... Sh but, you know, the, the, the ethics of killing, the morality of killing... Uh, these things sort of emerge when we talk about murder. You know, when you start thinking about ideas like murder and justice, you start asking about state and you start asking about um, is, you know, assassins, the whole idea of assassination. You know, we recently had um, uh, the former prime minister's assassins being released and they are released being celebrated and they're being seen as heroic because I always tell people one man kills another man. That's a fact. But now you can say the god killed the demon, the hero killed the villain, the hero killed the monster, and that's mythology. Mythology sort of tells you how to look at that incident. And from the lens of the state, you had an assassin plotting to kill a you know, former head of the state or a leader of the country or a political leader. But from another storyteller's point of view, this was an act of martyrdom. This was an act of bravery. This was an act against a tyrant. And suddenly, a vile act of violence becomes a valiant and venerable act of a hero. So the storytelling really is what the lawyers do. And how much value do we apply to the human being? If he was a Dalit worker who is in the little ditch uh, inside a manhole who is breathing noxious fumes, knowingly sent there without equipment, is that murder? Why does it not get the same attention as say, the head of state um, being shot? And obviously law is not equal, right? Your value comes from who you are, the the framework in which you exist. It is simply death, right? It is at the end of the day, a human being has killed another human being, if I just put it on the board. But below that I say, you know, killed in a manhole by noxious fumes uh, versus um, killed by a bomb. You see how the news channels um, are dealing with a murder of a woman uh, and the murderer's religion decides how much outrage is there. Just today or yesterday, I think there was another murder. The religion was not in fitting the... Pro 
political framework. So it's not a simple act of a woman being killed by a man. It was a which religion is killing whom because everything becomes political dividend. And outrage and anger is not, uh, you know, uniform and homogenous across the board. Uh, I think that's what the ancients were talking about in India, at least. In the, they, I think they were so aware of this. They didn't simply say do not kill because they knew killing is going to happen. And therefore, they did not give this very simple injunction. And I think that's an Indian way of thinking. Let's look at the context. Let's consider all the permutations and combinations. Is it worthwhile to punish the murderer? <laughs> you know, this kind of, uh, I don't know if you've seen a very famous uh, old black and white Bollywood movie called Pukar. It's a Saurabh Modi film and it's a beautiful film on justice and it's about uh, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth and uh, the queen, I mean it's a legend that the queen uh, Noor Jahan accidentally kills a washerman with her arrow. She was playing in the garden and um, she kills a washerman and the washerman's uh, wife comes to the uh, Jahangir and says, you know, you always tell eye for an eye. My husband has been taken away from me. Her husband should be taken away too but her husband happens to be uh, the the king of India. You suddenly have this wonderful story of what is called Dharma Sankat because suddenly you are being told a very brutal uh, truth that all humans are not equal. All husbands are not the same. The washerman is replaceable. The emperor of India is not. It's We always condemn caste but I think Manu is very aware of social hierarchy. And he's saying that, you know, it's while it's very nice to say that a human killing another human should be punished, an eye for an eye, whose eye makes a difference? And some eyes are disposable and some eyes are not disposable. And I think this is a very uh, disturbing idea for us, right? Because suddenly you make a case for inequality. And you justify it because you're very good because saying that, you know, the cost of losing the king is so high that I cannot afford to lose him. And that's what, you know, it all comes down to. Who is killing whom? And who can get away? Who gets a better lawyer? It's interesting that you speak about storytelling and, um, you know, allegory. And then immediately it comes to mind about Rakshas and other creatures, demons who are around. Because they seem to be these senseless beings that are out to only create uh, trouble and, and be murdered or killed. So how do you explain them in that context? That is the classic case of othering. It's a classic case of othering because you see when you read the Rig Veda, the Asuras are really classed together with the gods, with the Devas. Then gradually as the Yajurveda starts to appear, you start seeing this othering of Asuras and Devas, but it's very complex. For example, I was reading the story of the gods have a Brahmin called Brahaspati. The Devas have... See, the word English gods is a wrong word, but Devas have Brahaspati. The Asuras have Shukracharya. So both of them seem to have Brahmins. Both of them seem to be having this equal power. And then Indra goes and seduces that Brahmin on his side and therefore the Asuras become vulnerable. But they never go away. They're always there. They are the outsiders. They are the one who don't get a share of the sacrifice. In a way, it's almost saying that in order to get land and wealth, you have to deprive someone of it. And you have to live with the Asura, who is actually the, perhaps the original inhabitant of the land. And there is this kind of a tension in this conversation. They're not saying it, but, you know, I think Samajne Wale ko ishara kafi hai. And they're, they're making you um, aware, you know, of, I think those days, forests were being cleared to create farmlands. It's something like what we do today for industrialization. 
it happened in those days too. Forests were being burned, land was being cleared, villages had to be established, which means someone is losing the old uh, livelihood, the hunter-gatherers. So I think these um, state somehow justifies violence by saying I have to take care of my people, my tribe. And nation really comes from the word tribe. It's mere log. So as long as I'm killing to protect for my people, somehow that killing is okay. Um, you're finding Russia taking the help of the Orthodox Church and the Orthodox Church is actually saying, imagine in Russia, the Orthodox Church is saying that if you die for Russia, you will go to heaven. And I'm like, oh my God, this is so medieval. And uh, But it is happening. We are justifying young boys are being recruited in Russia, being sent to Ukraine to kill for one person's madness and it's being justified using religious vocabulary. So... Yeah, the storytelling, unfortunately, Rakshashas, Asuras are the other. And then you see that, oh, that's how we are othered. And once I other you, murdering you is like killing cattle, right? I have killed cattle. That's what riots are about. I other you. I other religions. I other castes. I other nationalities. Uh, other gender. What is a cup uh, uh, killing? The fathers killing their daughters because they have insulted the family name or chopping off their heads of their sons and they are valorized. These stories are valorized. Men sir cut diya for my honor of my kingdom, women being burnt alive and I'm like, look how story is allowing us to see a violent act. So, you know, Devnat, in a previous episode, we discussed um, death and what happens to us after death um, and and, you know, you described how it's pretty gruesome according to our Indian texts on what happens to us after death. Does that change if you go to the afterlife, you know, having committed something like a murder? So, you know, as imperial structures emerged in India from the 3rd century from the Mauryan Empire and gradually you see lots of imperial structures and polities emerge in India, that's also when all these Puranic stories emerged. We talked about uh, Naraka or hell and different kinds of hell for different kinds of punishment. And therefore, there is very clear punishments for murderers, uh, rapists, uh, serial killers. So there is, at one level, I think there is, you don't trust the system will punish the murderer. I think there is this kind of a lack of faith in the system. And therefore you create, okay, even if the system, he, you are able to escape the system, there is a larger reality called Yamraj and Chitragupta who are watching over the crimes you're committing. So this idea does enter Indian uh, thought and you find this in Garuda Puran, very well elaborated, Agni Puran. Even Manusmriti talks about it. There is a very clear other world punishment and very scary punishments like being flayed alive, being put in boiling water, being rolled on rocks, sharp rocks, it's birds pecking your eyes, uh, all kinds of these violent things. It's a very old idea in India of um, there is this concept of punishment. It's not the um, very simple, if you have done this, if you have broken the law, you will be punished by God, which seems almost algorithmic. It's not so simple, of course, even in the Judeo-Christian world. But in Indian uh, stories, you do have multiple narakas, but there's always a way out. If you do this, you might get away from it. So if you do enough, uh, you know, uh, give a lot of charity, do a lot of mahadana uh, to the Brahmins, then you'll be forgiven. So there is a constant way of bypassing it. And you find that even in Islam, if you appeal to God's mercy, because God is merciful one, you will be forgiven. So there's, I think we have always got this way out, you know, you have God will understand even if I commit a heinous crime, God, my karma made me do what I did and therefore God will understand. So I think there is this kind of a 
constant conversation, even punishments and bypassing punishments. Across myths and faiths, which is the most instructive tale on murder and its ill effects for you? You know, there is a story of Krishna's Syamantaka gem and it's a story of murder. There is this uh, uh, man who has a beautiful jewel, the Syamantaka jewel, which is given to him by the sun and Krishna, he belongs to the city of Dwaraka and Krishna tells him that, you know, it's such a beautiful jewel, don't wear it in your person, it's too beautiful. And, um, if, you know, you why don't you give it to the community? It should belong to everybody don't, because it's too precious and it'll lead to a lot of jealousy and anger. But the guy refuses to do that. And a few days later, he's found dead in the forest. And everybody accuses Krishna of murdering him. And then Krishna goes on this detective novel, literally like a detective novel. He finds where the jewel is and he identifies the killer, which turns out to be a lion. And then finds the, uh, the bears have got the jewel and he brings the jewel back. And because of that, he gets married to the uh, Satyabhama. Uh, and then the story becomes even more complicated because Satyabhama is a very beautiful woman. She's also a very rich woman. And many men wanted to marry her. And because the father gives her away in marriage to Krishna, they kill the father. So there's another murder that happens. And then, of course, Krishna has to go uh, and he finds justice and he kills, finds the killers and he punishes them. But guilty... Uh, are you guilty uh, or are you innocent until proven guilty? And Krishna's case, he is, everybody says he is a thief from a small, he's a cowherd. He obviously has never seen so much of wealth. So they immediately say that he is the killer. So he is sort of uh, guilty before he can prove himself. And he has to prove that he is not the murderer. And that's an interesting story. And then he has to become, the, he has to catch the murderers of his father-in-law. Um, and I think this story from the Bhagavad Puran is, uh, a story that is not very popular in Krishna literature. We don't talk about the story, but it comes from Bhagavata. And it sort of talks about in a very worldly way how murders take place, how we assume um, people are criminals, how we want to believe, how we assume things about things. And I think the story of Krishna and the Syamantaka gem, which needs a real, I think it will be a great Netflix season or <laughs> one of those things. But I think it, it makes you wonder about murder. It's for me the most fascinating story of murder I've ever come across. Today's episode was produced by Jairaj Singh, Sunai Marathe and Anuja Singh. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We're available on TY+, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, email us at tupodcast at timesinternet.in.